0: I'm not ashamed, I've known love, I've known rejection. I'm not afraid to declare my feelings. Take trust, for instance, or friendship. These are the important things in life. These are the things that matter, that help you on your way. If you can't trust your friends, well, what then? What then? This could have been any city. They're all the same.
1: From the very opening sequence of Danny Boyle's debut, Shallow Grave, in which the viewers zoomed through the streets of Edinburgh to the dark pounding beats of Leftfield, it was clear we were dealing with a filmmaker of great visual flair who really understood a thing or two about music. As if proof were needed, he followed Shallow Grave with train spotting and that set of songs, which Rank it alongside the likes of Pulp Fiction and Lockstock as one of the defining pop soundtracks of the 90s. Two decades on and Danny's still blazing a trail. Renton, Sick Boy, Begbie and Spud back alongside Iggy Blondie and one or two artists of today's T2 generation. I'm Edith Bowman and you're listening to Soundtracking, my weekly podcast celebrating the sounds of the silver screen. In the case of Danny, there's simply too much ground to cover in one show, so for the time being at least, we'll focus on his various collaborations with John Murphy, AR Rahman, and Rick Smith and Carl Hyde from Underworld, who of course had a big musical hand to play in both spotting films. T2 is here, and it's here with a phenomenal soundtrack. At what point did you start thinking about the music?
0: I always make my playlist, so I'd have a library already of stuff that for some reason felt connected to what we might be doing. Although I like sometimes to ask the actors about their songs. Sometimes I do that and get them to give me their playlist what their character's playlist is. So you're kind of like constantly looking for connections of things. But this one, yes, we started that process, but then... I started meeting with Rick and and it was very interesting with Rick because Rick Smith from Underworld, they weren't involved in the first one except that we obviously got their permission to use Dark and Long from Dubno Bass with My Headman. Slippy, which was not on that album, and was not a successful single that they'd put out. And I found it in HMV when there was a HMV on Oxford Street. Mm -hmm. I was just wandering around because I used to wander around all the time. And I thought, that's underworld, on Slippy, that's not on the album. And I took it home and played it, and that was the end of the film. This one I said to Rick, shall we do? I'd worked with him on the Olympics, and I worked with him on yeah. Frankenstein, and Sunshine he was involved in as well, with John Murphy. And neither of us were sure, what's it gonna be? I mean, is it gonna be needle drops like the other one? In which case, it's, he said, it's your taste, Danny, not mine. Or was it gonna be score, a bit of score? So we weren't sure and indeed we initially talked about approaching a lot of the songwriters from the first film to write a new song that was one of the ideas Yeah So then let's let's ask Noel Gallagher and Mick Jones and people like that if they'll write a new song for it We thought like that and then we didn't do that and then Rick played me this version of Born Slippy this kind of reimagining of it and I was like and that was a key moment because it made me feel confident not not feeling self-conscious about touching the other films musically yeah. but bringing it forward if necessary but it made me confident about if we're going to do it, change it mm. so that you have a muscle memory it connects with but it's new or different Then, extraordinarily, Liam Howlett, whose number I have in my phone book because he did a song for, we got his permission to use one of his songs for Lifeless Ordinary yeah. way back in the day,
1: Yeah,
0: rang up. Still got like, the
1: same phone, I like that. Like, Liam Howlett? <laughs> I was
0: like, oh, okay. And he said, yeah, I hear, you. I hear you might be doing train spotting, another train spotting. He said, do you want a remix of Lust for Life? And I was like, what? He said, yeah, I've got this idea for this remix of Lost For Life. He says, I'll send you 60 seconds of it. And he sent this 60 seconds through and it was like, oh my God. And I thought, how do I ring him back? I mustn't make a mistake. No, this is so great. And he was brilliant about it. tell Liam this, but that idea was already in the script that Lust for Life was almost like a personality in the film that was going to play a part in the narrative. It wasn't just like a needle drop. So they gradually begin to form around the material that yeah. you're working on and it's always important to keep it as organic as possible. I had a music executive, you know, like one of those people who picks, who suggests music to you. I had one of those imposed on me during Lifeless Ordinary and I didn't enjoy it. And it's very personal with me, I I have to kind of, and I'm struggling now because I'm too old and so it's not as fresh. But it was always very important to me. That process would be something I would be doing.
1: Like you say, that organic thing of things coming to you through fate or whatever it may be, yeah. that they're meant to be.
0: Yeah, More... they're not a prescribed list that's yeah. dropped off from record companies, things like that. Cos you know what you want to hit in terms of the tone of it, wouldn't yeah, you it, do. as well? So You're listening to songs and you feeling scenes. And in your head, you think, that feels like that scene. sometimes they don't emerge in the films and sometimes you're lucky and they do and um, the first film was i I remember being criticized for it being a bit mtv as they called it i mean there was a proper like we we mustn't let filmmaking descend into pop videos and i was like no i'm quite proud of that actually because i like mtv and i love watching those pop videos and it feels really expressive and it, uh, it was also in the first film it connected with a very glorious time in music anyway.
1: That this soundscape of music that you're creating, as well as being within the film, you know, as an album to listen to, it was going to have such an impact.
0: You don't think that, but you do... Well, maybe it's just directors or fledgling directors who have that desperate need to convince other people of their taste. <laughs> and so and so, when a moment arrives where everybody seems to like your taste, it's like, oh, at last! <laughs> but you don't think that at the time, no. And it took off in a way that you can only evaluate in retrospect. You can't pretend that you had any idea about it at the time. I remember thinking, ah, oh, it's good music, but I used to think that about Led Zeppelin and my... <laughs> fell on deaf ears with other people... <laughs> (laughs)
1: Young fathers who you you came across who are such an important part of this new soundtrack and the the most perfect fit both in the music that already exists by them but also in this new track Did they write it specifically for you?
0: I wish I could say that I found their music. I don't know why I didn't know it beforehand because they'd already done two EPs and two LPs and I loved it. And it felt so connected to the world of the film. And every time we tried it, it worked. John Harris, the editor, could just switch out one for another and both worked equally as well, which is very unusual. relationship with them so I asked them to come to the set see if they wanted to have a look round and they were kind of interested not they really. love a
1: chat no <laughs>
0: but not really it was like, <laughs> yeah, it's okay and I, was, and I thought well, that's it is it um, I don't know what I thought and then a couple of days later they sent this track and they said this is a new track do you want to use it and it was like that track hey, no. Sometimes you tire of the tracks, you listen to them so many times they fade a little bit yeah. for you until this couple of years later or whatever, but this one hasn't, it's like I'd love the track it's still.
1: First film Lust for Life and this film we have high contrast. It's
0: perfect. Well that I have to thank Rick for that.
2: This is the beginning of the end, so you might as well set fire to your friends. But it
0: ain't out for an Omega, it's just Nintendo and Sega. I don't think they work together as such, but they're very close, him and Lincoln, high contrast. And Rick had brought Lincoln in to do some work on the Olympic, the opening ceremony for us, and he'd done some amazing remixing. Rick lives in this farmhouse out in Essex, and and we go there and we sit in his studio and we play stuff, really. And he played me this track, and I I said, can we have it for the film? Because it's got the energy of Lost for Life, but it isn't Lost for Life. It's a modern track, it's a modern sensibility, but it has that drive. A shotgun is a good substitute for mouthwash Drone controllers eat their
2: lunch at their desktops
0: the film very deliberately began with a memory of feet dropping in running so it's a very deliberate placement and so you go what are we going to accompany that with musically and we thought about many many different things actually because it's a standalone scene because of what happens at the end of it yeah it's kind of little story in itself and it was always the high contrast one which was the best one for it for sure yeah <laughs>
1: I read a lovely thing which said that the film that made you fall in love with the film was Apocalypse Now, which is a film that uses music brilliantly,
3: brilliantly. absolutely
1: brilliantly. Yeah. Whether it's you know Wagner or The Doors or The Stones, that yeah. combination of kind of classical and contemporary—that's obviously something that stayed with you. Then, do you think?
0: Oh my god, that movie! <laughs> oh my god, that movie! That man, I've met him. Have you? Oh my god, I was like, were you I boy? was like jelly. <laughs> oh, shit. Shaking. I've met all these bloody famous people. I've met the Queen. Met them all, but it's like jelly in front of Francis Ford Coppola, and he's the sweetest man. And he thought, Who is this Egypt I was like, I was in my 50s and I'm shaking meeting him. This is the end,
3: beautiful friend. This is the end, my only friend. End of our elaborate plans, the end of everything that stands, the end, no safety or
0: I mean, there are wonderful directors, obviously, but there's no director whose craft is built on, you're not aware of him. You're absolutely not aware of him. In The Godfather, Apocalypse, now, those movies, you're absolutely not aware of him. It appears to be fingerprint free. You're watching this, and it's like George Orwell says about prose. You should read great prose through a windowpane. You're not aware of any artifice in it at all. You just read it clearly, and watching his films from that period is like that. Yet, he is the orchestrator and the greatest needle dropper. I mean, Scorsese is a great needle dropper, but you're aware of it happening. When it happens in Apocalypse Now, it's like, holy God, where has this come from? It's like, it, it just feels like the madness of the world that he's depicting. It doesn't feel like somebody's picked it, got permission, needle dropped it in there, you know, which is the process you go through. Yes, he's very, very special for me.
1: Music within that. Then a lot of people will cite you when they hear "Lost for Life" or "Atomic" by Blondie. They'll instantly think of you.
0: Well, I mean, yeah. Except that you didn't write the music. (laughs) You're kind of like (laughs) you're a gatekeeper, really, not a creative. So you've got to hold your hand up to those creators. It was really interesting. We put a Blondie track in the new film as well because "Dreaming" has always been one of my favourite tracks by (laughs) them. It. It's just the fact that you're a fan, and you get, you're working in an industry where you get to pass that fandom on, rather than actually taking any vicarious credit for a part in its creation. I believe pop music is one of the major cultural influences, as great in its way as Picasso or Rembrandt. Pop music is that: this extraordinary voices that you hear from everywhere. There's no barriers. There's no education necessary. There's no money necessary. These voices just appear and sing to you, and it's the modern art form really, so I'm lucky to be able to use it in the things I do.
1: So differently with each project that's what's so wonderful you know and you've worked with a fantastic selection of composers you know you mentioned john Murphy a couple of times there as well sunshine i re really listened to the soundtrack for that film and it's it's spine tingling it's 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 otherworldly really i think
0: I was always worried about composers, proper composers. That is people who are doing a whole score without needle drops. Yeah. Because I was clearly a needle drop fan. Like I remember I worked with Angelo Badalamenti, who is one of the people I admire the most. And we did this film, The Beach, and I got to work with him. And he did this beautiful theme tune for it. And I dropped it in favour of a Molby song, Porcelain. I thought, that's typical, me. You get one of the world's great composers in and write a beautiful theme for the establishment of this tropical paradise, and then you drop it in favour of a track from a Moby album. Hey, 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 hey. And I did, and I know I was like that, and I always worry about them that they wouldn't want to work with me because think, well, we do our best work, and he'll just replace it with a bloody Blondie track or something. <laughs> In my dreams the idea and I worked with, I was very lucky to work with Murphy and the first film we did together was Millions which did need a composer because it was kids and although there are some needle drop bits in it, because it was kids it needed a score. going to do it as a musical and the kids were going to sing and i kind of chickened out of that which i regret you still want to do a musical don't you big time <laughs> big time <laughs> but it was lovely working with john on that and working with him and that and then sunshine came out of that actually and and 28 days later came out of that as well
3: don't cry. don't need don't see you take it out for me it's all let <laughs> on
0: It's hard because you kind of, when you're using a proper composer, these days I think only Stephen Frears delivers the edited film to the composer without a temp score on it I believe he's one of the few directors left who does that so that the composer starts from scratch yeah. which must be a wonderful place to begin the rest of them sadly get these temp scores which are bits of James Horner <laughs> bits of you know other movies bits of stuff put on it and they have to decide whether they completely contradict it like their instincts tell them yeah. or they pastiche it which is a horrible thing to ask a creative musician to do and that's one of the binds because the studio has already tested the movie with that 10th track yeah. and it scored really well. So their inclination is don't change a thing, just do a bit of music that's legally different but basically the same. same. And that's wow. a nightmare for them. But yeah, I've done like three films with John. I was very lucky then to work with A.R. Rahman. And A.R. Rahman is Mozart in India, the living embodiment of Mozart, even though he started off in pop jingles for commercials and television. Just unbelievably talented. the first Indian to pick up an Oscar so that will always be there I'm so proud of that you know because like he had two songs nominated a bit like La La Land but this year they got two nominated he had two nominations so it was like he could lose twice (laughs) but he won (laughs) once so it was very nice indeed and I mean that originally weirdly I tried to get Jack White to write that score of Slumdog
1: wow from the White Stripes yeah wow
0: Why? Because I thought, oh, that'll be interesting. We'll bring somebody from a different culture into India. Anyway, I couldn't get hold of him. I mean, I just, like, I think they said no, but I had no idea whether he ever knew. But the record company said no, or whatever, anyway, management. And so I then met A.R. Rahman. They said, oh, you should meet A.R. Rahman. And that was a major thing for me. And the collaboration, he's a wonderful collaborator, and we worked very closely together, and he built the score. (laughs) Like uh, Paper Planes trackers. Yeah, is, the Paper yeah. Planes, the MIA, which is great. Which has its roots in The Clash, of course. I fly like
4: paper, get high like planes. If you catch me at the border, I've got visas in my neck. If you come around here, I'll make a all day.
1: What conversations do you have with a composer in terms of, and when do you bring them in? Is it the same for every project where you start those conversations early on in terms of what you want them to create for you on a score
0: level? What I like to do is we sit around and play music because it's hard to Lovely. talk music. So we sit around yeah. and play tracks. I play bits of tracks and they play me stuff.
3: Oh.
0: Oh Slumdog There was a wonderful moment So A.R. Raman has a little studio Near Highgate And lots of the musicians Are in the West End in musicals go there after hours And sing for him And stuff like that It's amazing Oh but it's like
1: a little speakeasy Yeah, up. yeah it's beautiful
0: <laughs> and M.I.A She came along And she was a big fan of his I remember them sitting down Sharing stuff on their laptops Sharing bits of grooves And stuff they were working on The two of them And I was just watching that From a distance And that was a real pleasure Like that yeah, Cause they did one of the tracks together,
4: yeah. They can't touch me, we break off run so fast, they can't even hit tree in the night chops. Touch me, I show you chops on my sex I quickly. Pick up the packs on my journey. Don't run they start to follow me. I'm alive, some days they suck. We live for the buck we get for the family. One day I wanna be a star, so I get to hang in a bar. I'll go to Vegas to the payoffs, just to forget my scars. Sweat have made me shitty. I can enjoy with speed, I'm nifty. I hope I live till I'm 50. See my city girl quick till I'm 50.
1: So you worked with him again on Under Twenty Seven Hours Indeed. as well.
3: Yeah.
1: Culturally, for him, Slumdog Millionaire was his kind of home ground. But then, with 127 days, it's like almost what the reason why you almost went with Jack White was going against the obvious.
0: You bring a different sensibility. Yeah, it's music as well. It's yeah. like such a universal language, such a cliche, but so true. And all you can get by doing that is a freshness, which is Bennett will be a benefit really, because they just come at it in a slightly different way. What you receive from it, if you've done it well, just complements the film and you don't sense where it's come from. You don't sense any Indian flavour in it, for instance, like that, Mm. because he's uh, kind of like he services the plot. And the guy whose story that was about admitted that he didn't have any black friends because as a climber, there weren't any black climbers. I mean, that's in his book, he talks about that. Why do you never meet any black climbers? You know, so he moved in a completely white world so to have a, a composer from uh, Chennai in India a composer it's that's wonderful multicultural universe yeah.
1: Finish. i Just wanted to ask you a quick question about the Olympics. If that's all right, where did you start with the music for that?
0: We <laughs> well, I started earlier. I started with we did this play at the National Theatre, Frankenstein, and I approached Rick Smith and Carl Hyde from Underworld about doing a kind of score for it. And at one point, we thought it was going to be it might be even be live and stuff like that, and that might, they might play live. And and I was testing them. In fact, I admitted it to them, that this was a tryout because I said, I've got this big job coming off, but I want to see if you can deal with what it's like to deal with live performance. Yeah, It's a very different skill than having the control of the studio all the way through the process until the final delivery. This is a live thing. And they were great on Frankenstein. They were really terrific. So I asked them to do it. It was a mixture of all these things. It was original composing, uh, which Rick did for that first industrial drumming sequence. That's an original composition which should have got a Grammy. I've no idea why they didn't get a Grammy. You think if that doesn't worth a Grammy, what is? I just don't know what is. <laughs> There was also Needle Drop that they got High Contrast Info to help with, and and they got Chemical Brothers help them, so they called on their whole family of contacts to help with it. And it became something where we were representing something much, much bigger than us individually. And you felt you were out there on behalf of everybody who loved music out of this country of ours. And how good we were at producing this music. And we are good at it. And there's no real way of explaining quite why that is, because it's a small place. Well,
1: we Ireland.
0: And I got to meet David Bowie. Wow. I got to meet, so I went to New York to meet him, who, when you talk about being jelly in front of Francis Ford Coppola. (laughs) It was like being in front of David Bowie, it was like, oh my God. Because I was trying to persuade him to come and sing live.
3: Yeah. And
0: that was the only thing we didn't get. And we now know why, he didn't want to do any live performances, but he was hugely helpful in releases of things. And it was a very special couple of hours. So, yeah, great memories. And in the film, we have a little tribute to David Bowie, actually, because at one point we thought we'd got to put a Bowie song in yeah. because he passed away just as we began preparing the film. And he's fundamental to the novels and the film. And You know, he's such a part of our culture, everybody's culture, really. And everything seemed to be not good enough, unless you can feature so much of it. So we, there's a little moment where Renton flicks through his records and we turned all the soundtrack off at that moment, including the sound of fingers on vinyl. And he just flicks through a couple of images of David Bowie. And it's absolute silence, which you're not allowed in films, because they always worry that in the cinema it's a mistake, the soundtrack's dropped out or something. But it's there as a kind of like silent acknowledgement to a man who filled our world with the most beautiful sounds. For 50 years
1: and still does and still does donnie an absolute pleasure i could talk to you for hours about it oh, good.
0: let's do thanks. part
1: part two at some point in the yeah, future cool. um, and congratulations on the film thanks so much <laughs> Thank I,
2: I wish you could swim like dolphins like dolphins can swim Nothing will keep us together We can beat them Forever and ever Or oh, we can be heroes Just for one day
1: As if you needed telling, that's Heroes by David Bowie Rounding off this latest episode of Soundtracking with the wonderful Danny Boyle. My huge thanks to Danny for taking the time to talk to us in what's been an incredibly busy week for him. T2 Train Spotting is on general release now and makes for a fine companion to its predecessor. You'll find a full track list for the show by heading to edithbowman.com, where you can also subscribe to the podcast and listen to all of our previous episodes. Follow us on social media. We are at Soundtracking UK and do rate us on iTunes and leave us a comment if you get a moment. Make sure you join us next week for another veritable feast of movies and music. I very much look forward to the pleasure of your company there.